Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and, and God, as, as we approach this time that we set aside to, to devote to the teaching of your word, to the hearing of your word, Father, to the study of your word, God, we just ask for you, Jesus, ask for you, Holy Spirit, to come and anoint my lips to teach your people your word. Um, some, some powerful patterns, some powerful examples for us in the text this morning, and God, some things that we, maybe there's someone here, maybe there's multiple people here. God, this is exactly, you have a way of doing this. This is exactly what we need. This is exactly what we need to heed, exactly what we need to apply to our lives in this very day, maybe some of the situations that we find ourselves in. God, your word is, is that relevant. It's that living and active to, to really meet us right in that moment. So I just pray that you would do that, and I just pray for, for a stillness, God, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your precious people that came to hear from you. God, meet us in this place. Meet us in power. Meet us with your very real, tangible presence. Through your word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Acts 15, we're we're getting back into the text, kind of following Paul's Paul and Barnabas going to the Jerusalem council to kind of... Is something sounding weird with my voice? Are you hearing that? You got that? I'm hearing like, like it's twinging back at me. And if it's twinging back at me, it's twinging right towards you. And that's not good. But Charlie's on it. All right. Well, what, what I want to know, what I want us to kind of engage with this is right after the Jerusalem council, right after the whole church leadership goes to Jerusalem and they are unified to come to the conclusion that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Not of works, no need for boasting, no need to add circumcision, no need to add any portion of the law. Jesus did the finished work, we're saved. That's what chapter 15 was all about. But what's amazing is they're able to come into this incredible point of unity only to go back, Paul and Barnabas, only to go back to the church in Antioch and divide over who's going to go along onto the next missionary journey with them. And so you're kind of like, this is really great. Oh, what's going to be next? And you're like, oh, bummer. Paul and Barnabas are being broken up. They're going to have a conflict that's going to be such a disagreement that's going to separate them from continuing down the path of ministry together. And that's kind of a bummer. But we see that. We see some of these things in the church. We see some conflict in some areas of our lives. And and sometimes it gets resolved the way it should be. Sometimes we would love a do-over there because we didn't handle that conflict the right way. But that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I'm just curious, just not necessarily a show of hands, but just in your own heart, how do you feel about conflict? I mean, does anyone like conflict? Does anyone prefer conflict, right? Just the thought of conflict is probably stirring up some emotions in our hearts and minds. We think, oh, that, that one conflict I'm currently in with that person, or that one big conflict that I've never been able to forget. We, we all have these feelings towards conflict because it's a very real and inevitable part of our lives. But I want us to, to try and pull it back to its core. Conflict at its, at its core, it's just a disagreement. It's just a differing of opinions. Right? It's how we handle conflict that turns it into something more, or turns it into something lasting. But at, at its core, it's just a difference of opinion. Let me give you an example. Two people come together and say, hey, let's go get some ice cream. We say, yes, we agree, ice cream. One person says, let's go to Cold Stone. The other person says, no, no, Baskin Robbins. And now you have a conflict, right? A difference of opinions. And yes, maybe I'm speaking from experience, something that small has turned into something much, much bigger, right? 
because the person wants to make their case and stand up on the hill of cold stone, which, again, maybe I'm speaking about myself, maybe I'm not, and the other person doesn't humble themselves and just say, hey, bottom line, I'm getting ice cream, right? Worst case scenario, I'm getting ice cream. But that's what's what happens. Sometimes a conflict, a difference of opinion can be something so small, and what happens? We can turn a mountain out of a molehill, right? Something that's really inconsequential. But we can all probably testify to that. That happens. But that's what we're going to see in the morning, in this morning in the text. We're going to see some conflict. In fact, we have a little outline for you this morning, and this happens like two or three times a year. So I'm so glad you're here for a sermon outline because it's so rare. But here's our outline for our study this morning. We're seeing conflict in three different areas. So part one, we're going to talk about conflict in the church. You ever heard of that happening? Conflict, a disagreement in the church? Yeah, that that happens, right? We're not immune to it. So we're going to see that conflict in the church. We're going to see number two, conflict with the culture. You ever have a conflict with the culture in which we live in? We're going to see how to handle that. We're going to see how Paul and Silas and Timothy handle that. And then part three, we're going to see conflict with God. Think about that one, right? Having a disagreement with God. Who usually wins when you have a disagreement with God? But we're going to see that. We're going to see a conflict with God here in the text this morning. And in each one of those, those three areas, we're going to pull out some patterns for our lives, some patterns that we can apply to our lives. I love the saying, I love the truth that we all learn from experience, and we do, don't we? But that experience doesn't always have to be ours. We can learn from somebody else's experience, which I hope we will do from the text this morning. But as we approach our first area of conflict, conflict in the church, I want to share an illustration with you. The illustration goes like this. It's, it's about the carpenter's tools, all right? The carpenter's tools come together to attend a conference. Now, Brother Hammer is the one presiding over this conference. Now, during the conference, several suggest that Brother Hammer needed to leave because he was too loud, right? Get it? The hammer is too loud. Are you following me? Because yes, that's where we're going with this. All right, Brother Hammer's too loud, he needs to leave. So Brother Hammer says, if I have to leave, Brother Screw must go also. I mean, really, how helpful is he to get him to do everything? You got to turn him around and around and around again and again and again. Brother Screw speaks up and says, if you wish, I'll leave, but Sister Plain must leave too. Because all her work is surface and there's no depth in anything she does. Sister Plain retorts and says, well, Brother Tape Measure will also have to leave as well because he's always measuring things and he thinks he's the only one who's right. So Brother Tape Measure complains about Sister Sandpaper and says, you ought to leave too because you are so rough, you're always rubbing people the wrong way. And on and on and on it goes. The carpenter's tools start to argue with one another until a carpenter from Nazareth walks in. Now, he doesn't say anything. He just walks in and gets to work and starts using every single tool for his purposes effectively as they were gifted and designed. And he wants to build a church because that's what the carpenter does. Jesus builds his church, but he starts using all these different pieces to build a place where the gospel can be preached, where the saints can be equipped, where light can be shown and shined out into a community. And when it's all said and done and his work is finished, Brother Saw rose up because, you know, he saw. Brother Saw, he says, I observe that all of us are workers together with the Lord. We all have gifts. We all have purpose. It may look differently, but in the hands of the carpenter, it's beautiful. 
right? And, and may we always remember that, right? It's a great illustration, but may we always, always, always remember that. The, the, the tools on a carpenter's belt, they have to be different. The people inside the church, those that make up the church body, you all, we have to look a little different. We have to have different gifts. We have to be given different things to perform different functions. But by the same Spirit we're given them, and for the same glory of the same Lord we've been given them. But that's what we're seeing here. And and they're going to forget that we're going to see some carpenter's tools, in a sense, start to argue. Because this illustration, it does happen in the church. And conflict, differing of opinions happen. And when not handled the right way, divisions can occur. And separations can happen. And departures do take place, even amongst the most sincere and faithful servants of the Lord. And so it's not a coincidence that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is taking us into a conflict between some missionaries right after this moment of great unity, this moment where everybody comes together in one accord. So check it out. Paul and Barnabas come back. They, they leave the council in Jerusalem. They come back to Antioch, this church where they've been serving at together, picking up where we left off last week. Verse 36 says this, Then, after some days... Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So here's part one of our study. Here's the first conflict area that we're going to see, conflict in the church. And we're seeing here, Christians are not immune to conflict, right? That's an understatement, isn't it? Because I don't think there's, there's, there's many more things the enemy loves to do than build division and strife and contention right here within the church, right in between Christians, because he loves to divide, and if he can divide, he can conquer. So he, it's an understatement. He loves to bring some of these situations up. And these verses that we're seeing here, they're tough to read because this is a sad situation. Paul and Barnabas, these, these two guys have known each other for 10 years at this point. They've been serving in ministry together for six of those years, and God has done an incredible thing through them. They love each other. They have a mutual love and respect for each other in Christ. They're a great team. They have complementary gifts, and God has borne a lot of fruit. And I think you could say this, that Barnabas is Paul's number one choice. That's the only person that comes to mind when he thinks, let's go on another missionary journey. When the Spirit of God starts stirring in his heart, hey, let's go back on mission, he thinks Barnabas. Barnabas is the guy I want to go with me. Barnabas is the guy that should go with me. And so verse 36 says, he goes to Barnabas and he says, hey, let's go back and check out these cities where we've seen Christians be converted to know Jesus and churches that had been planted. Let's go check them out. And Barnabas, upon hearing it, says, yeah, let's do it. It sounds great, Paul. And let's bring John Mark with us too. And Paul's like, oh, oh, that's great. Let's do it. Whoa, whoa, wait, What? Why would we want to take John Mark with us? Where's this going? Where does this guy fit into the equation? Are you talking about the guy who bailed on us in Pamphylia? The one who departed from the missionary work, left halfway through? Are we talking about the same guy? There's our conflict, right? 
We've got Barnabas who wants John Mark to go. We've got Paul who does not want John Mark to go. Now, before we start breaking this down, who's with Paul here? Who thinks Paul's right? Who thinks Barnabas is right? Right? Wonderful, right? We've got a difference of opinion, right? We've got a conflict even in here, which is wonderful. But look at what's going on here. They both have their biblical reasons. I want you to see this consistent with Barnabas's character, right? Remember, he, his name was Joses, and he's renamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because he's an encourager. Consistent with his character, he wants to give John Mark a second chance. And think about this. Remember, he did the same thing for Paul? I mean, it's crazy, right? Remember, it was Paul who's up in Tarsus, all on his own, outside of fellowship as far as we know, and it was Barnabas who goes and finds Paul and brings him to Antioch so they can co-pastor the church in Antioch for a year. And then it was Barnabas who, once Paul goes to Jerusalem, all the other disciples are keeping their distance. Why? Because they say, Paul is only who he used to be to us. You ever had somebody who just doesn't allow you the room to change? Doesn't allow God's grace room to change you? That's what's happening in Jerusalem. They're like, Paul, hey, he was a fierce persecutor of the church. He's always going to be that. But that's not what Barnabas says. Barnabas says, no, I know he's not who he was anymore. I see what God is doing in him. He's come to know Jesus as Lord. And it's Barnabas who brings him in. Barnabas has taken a chance on Paul. And listen, that's all he wants to do here for John Mark. He just wants to give him another chance. He wants to reach for Christ in him. He says, I'm going to encourage him in the present to press on in Christ into the future. That's Barnabas. And church, it's beautiful. It's grace-filled. It's Christ-like. Barnabas doesn't deny that John Mark didn't bail on them in the first missionary journey, but he wants to give him another chance. Now, he has a biblical reason. He has a biblical basis. Maybe Barnabas is thinking like this. Proverbs 24:16 says for a righteous man may fall 7 times and rise again but the wicked shall fall by calamity. And I think Barnabas could say, "Hey, John Mark loves the Lord. John Mark has put his faith in Jesus and been made righteous because Jesus has deposited his righteousness in his place." And you know what? He fell down. He fell down in Pamphylia. He fell down on the first mission trip, but he's gotten back up and he wants to come again and he's coming with us. That's what he says and that's that's what is his stance in. And again, it's it's beautiful. Verse 37, look at it. It says, "Barnabas is determined A very strong word, determined, means he's made up his mind, resolved in his heart. It's a strong stance. Wherever I go, John Mark is going. He's taken him under his wing. But Paul has equally a strong stance. It says that Paul, still in verse 37, it says, or verse 38 now, it says, but Paul insisted that they not take John Mark. So equally a strong word saying, we're not going to take this guy. And, and Paul has his case too. He could say, John Mark wasn't set aside by the Holy Spirit to be a part of this mission team back in Acts 13. When the church in Antioch, when they pray, when they fast, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Paul for the work. It said nothing about John Mark, right? And we talked about that a few weeks back. So John Mark seems to be added through the wisdom of men, and it proves to be the wisdom of men because he doesn't stay the course. So Paul's saying, hey, we don't want to make this mistake again. 
Paul may even be looking back at this situation saying, no one who puts their hand to the plow, no one who begins the work and then looks back and departs, that person is not fit for the kingdom of God. Paul could say, this guy's not fit for mission. He needs to stay back, get to know Peter, write the gospel of Mark. That's his calling, not mission work. Maybe that's what he's thinking. But I want you to understand this. Paul's stance is equally as Christ-like. It's as equally as, as God's will for this situation. We say, well, how, how do we know that? Because he's using Jesus' own words. And again, we're, we're supposing he is. We don't know that he is. But if he's using that stance, what I quoted comes right from Jesus' own lips. Luke 9.62, it says, But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And in this context, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. And he's been talking about, about what it entails. And as he's teaching this, he has two men who come up to him. Two people come and say, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus, but first let me bury my father. And, and in most cases, his father hadn't even died yet. What he means is, let me wait until my father dies so then he can get my inheritance and then I can be all set and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's saying, no, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me now, is what he would say. The other person says, well, let me follow you, but let me first go back and say, say farewell. Let me have a going away party before I go. And Jesus says, no. So maybe Paul's using this kind of stance, but it's a, it's a biblical basis to say, no, John Mark shouldn't be a part of this missionary journey. But again, whose, whose side do you take here? It's a conflict. It's a disagreement that both sides could be right. That's what's tricky about some of these. Sometimes not every disagreement that we find ourselves in, does, does one person have to be right, one person have to be wrong? Do we understand that? Because it's, it's tricky, especially in the church. We can have different perspectives. The hammer can be told, you're too loud. The saw can be told, you're too sharp. Whatever the case may be, but in the Lord's hands, both of these perspectives are perfect and beautiful and needed. As much as I love Barnabas and, and think we all need a Barnabas or 10 of them in our lives, I love Paul and think we all need 10 of those in our lives too. Because we need to have the grace and compassion to help one get up again and again and again, not losing heart, not showing, not showing a skeptical viewpoint that God isn't able to save them. And then at the same time, we need to have the laser-like focus sometimes to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus and stay the course when it seems like others are dropping away. So they're beautiful. They're both beautiful. They're both being used by the Lord. But the bottom line is here they're at an impasse, a collision point where this ideological difference is driving this to a point of conflict. But that's what's happening here. Luke says that this, con this contention, this con conflict, it became so sharp they parted company from one another. Now let's not take this too far. I don't think they were calling each other names. I don't think they got in a fist fight. I don't think this, does, this caused any division within the church in Antioch. We're not told that any of that happened. But we are told that they go their own way. We are told Paul's going to take Silas and go one way. Barnabas is going to take John Mark and go another way. And we know that these two men will never serve on a missionary team together again. Now, they're going to speak fond of each other, right? There, there's there's going to be some reconciliation, even with Paul and John Mark later. But the bottom line is that's what happens. A division, a separation, and a departure occurs all over a conflict. 
Now, yes, God is going to use this. God does use this. God really is able to work out all things for his glory and our good. He really is. And yes, he's going to use this. Now, now there's double the amount of missionaries on the mission field taking the gospel to the end of the earth. God's going to use it. And Paul is going to be the one who, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to write more scripture on Christian unity, on humility, on valuing others as greater than yourself than any other person in the Bible. And I think it probably begins right here. Because maybe Paul took a stand on something. He says, that was really not the hill to die on. This was not an essential thing. So we say, yes, God uses it. But church, what if he didn't have to? What if, what if we handled this situation the right way before it got to this point? And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about just briefly making some application points for this situation. What if we chose humility first when we're in a situation like this? What if we valued others within the church as greater than ourselves? What if we had the mind of Christ and humbled ourselves, went low in a situation like this, and let God work it out? I think we'd see a completely different outcome in most of the situations that we face. Things like this are going to happen. For me personally, and this this is true for every single one of you, I love to surround myself with passionate people. I love passionate people. And you know what happens when you hang out with passionate people? You're going to find they're passionate about things. And sometimes they're passionate about things that maybe you're not as passionate about. And that can lead to some conflict. But I love their passion. I think you can redirect passion a lot easier than you can fuel passion or get passion going. But just by that, that premise alone, you're going to find that there's going to be some difference of opinion. Paul is a passionate person. He wants to see people get saved, and he doesn't want to be with someone who's going to start the race and not finish it. Barnabas, passionate for Jesus, passionate for mission. He wants to see people get saved, but he doesn't want to miss the opportunity to give someone another chance. So both passionate for the Lord leads to a disagreement. But what happens if this is some situation that we're in? When we find ourselves in a conflict like this with another Christian, with a fellow believer, I want you to remember these three things. What should we do? Here's a pattern for life. Handle the conflict, the confrontation the right way. Now, how do we do that? Well, here's three things. Number one, when you find yourself in a dispute, a disagreement, a conflict with another believer in the church, the first thing you need to do is stop and pray. Take some time to step out of that situation and pray. In the heat of the battle, in the heat of the confrontation, common sense becomes a lot less common, doesn't it? And we're not listening except only to hear enough to be able to launch our next attack and make our point, right? We've all been there. We all understand that. But if we step out of the situation to pray, we're going to find that God is able to soften our hearts. God is able to soften their hearts. God is able to bring a different perspective to the whole situation. So I want you to remember that. Pray for God to show you their perspective, Right? Don't pray that they would bend to your perspective. Don't pray that God would show them that you're right. Step back and pray and say, God, show me where they're coming from. I know Paul. I know Barnabas. Or you fill in the blank for that name. I know they love you. And I know they love me. I am not seeing why they want to take John Mark on this situation. God, show me what's going on here. Or I don't know why he won't take John Mark. Why? Ask for God to show you where they're coming from. The ability to see both sides. Slow down. Calm down. Get down on your knees and pray. I've done this, church. I need to continually do this. We need to do this. 
And I've watched God come to me when I'm praying and say, Brian, you're off base. And I'm not meaning just you, Brian. I mean me. I'm off base. I'm off base. I'm, I'm missing the Lord's heart. And I've watched him bring humility to my heart. And I get to come to that person and say, hey, listen, I think John Mark should come. I love your heart of grace. Whatever the case may be, or you're right, John Mark shouldn't come. I'm trying to play both sides here. But, but the bottom line is I've totally had God come to me and say, I'm off. And I need to go to that person and say, you're right. This is the situation. And I've also had that person come to me or when we've gotten back together and say, you know what, I've been off. I'm, I'm holding on to something that's not right. But I watch humility reign if you give God's grace room to work in both hearts. So pray. Again, I'm talking about conflict with other believers. Pray. And I know that sounds silly, right? My wife and I, we, and I love you, teach on something like this. You're going to be tested on it a few times during the week. And so it's funny, my wife and I are having this disagreement. And I tell her I'm going to tell you this. But I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm trying to put this into practice. Hey, we need to stop and pray. But she says that one thing that pushes that button that I've got to say that one other jab. And it's so not what I'm supposed to be doing following this list. It's, it's hard to do, but it is good. And it does bear fruit. So I want to encourage you, take some time to pray. But you know, be that person in that, in that relationship, a marriage relationship, or be that person with a friendship. Say, hey, we need to pray. And you, that person's like, oh, we need to pray right now. And then you know that's exactly when you need to pray, when you're like, I can't believe you asked me to pray about this. That's the exact response of you know you need to pray. So pray. Secondly, listen to this. Seek a wise compromise. Think about that. We're talking about two believers. We're talking about bringing on a person into, into ministry, into, into the mission. We're not talking about anything doctrinal. We're not talking about anything essential, right? So a compromise isn't a failure. A compromise isn't stepping down a path that shouldn't be. A compromise is a win-win for the relationship. And I think some of us, we, we think of a compromise as, well, it's really a lose-lose. You don't get everything you want. You don't get everything you want. But listen, if it maintains unity in the fellowship and maintains the friendship, it's a win-win. That's a win. We've got to think about it as a win because it is a win. But in this situation, they could have sought that. And listen, maybe they did. We're not given the full situation. But, but if we do that, if we seek a wise compromise, we need to differentiate between what, what are essentials. What are those non-negotiable things and what aren't? And if we establish some of those things, you're going to find we have a lot more to agree upon than we don't. A, a whole lot more. And so we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. So seek a wise compromise. And then thirdly, listen to this one. Give it time. Give it time. We live in a fight or flight world. We're either fighting or we're fleeing, it seems like. We live in a if you don't get your way, get out kind of world. And so you see that confrontation, you either avoid it or you have it in an incorrect way, and then that becomes the last time you ever conversate with that person. And so then we leave, we leave the church, we leave that friendship, we leave the relationship, we leave the marriage, right? Because we didn't handle it the right way. And so I'm asking you, give it time, pray, seek a wise compromise, give it time, give God's grace time to work. I think sometimes we leave right before God was going to bring the solution that was going to bring everything back to peace and order. And we left before he did, and we never heard that. So give it some time. Slow this thing down. Be patient. Be long-suffering. Be willing to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. That's what Jesus did and does for us. So just be like Jesus in this situation. Seek the peace. Seek to walk in unity. Having said all that and, and believing all that for most situations, 
sometimes a conflict is best resolved when two parties go their own way. And that's what's going to happen with Paul and Barnabas here. Listen, I believe that is the exception, not the norm. But that is what happens here. They're going to go their own way, and the account in the book of Acts is going to follow what God is going to do with Paul and Barnabas. He's going to sail off the scene here in the book of Acts. We're not going to, we're not going to see him again. But that's where we're at here. So moving on, chapter 16 now says, Then he, Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, so join his missionary team. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So as we move on to our next part here, you're seeing the next conflict kind of form itself. But what we see first is we see Paul along with Silas now. They're going to head out on this second missionary journey. And as far as we know, they initially want to go back to the cities that Paul and Barnabas visited on the first missionary journey. They want to strengthen them. They want to encourage them. They want to show them the letter, the decree from the Jerusalem council showing them that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. They want to, they want to show them that. And that's, that's part of what they're going to do until the Holy Spirit of God gets involved and starts leading them into a different direction. We'll talk about that in a minute. But just for like purposes of overview, just kind of take a look at this map. This is Paul's second missionary journey. They're going to start in Antioch. They're going to come up here to Tarsus. We're going to see them first in Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. Then we'll see them kind of in Tarsus before they go into Macedonia, and that's modern-day Europe, and then kind of Corinth and Athens, Greece down here. But what we have going on is, is that's the overview. We're going to be talking about Paul's second missionary journey until the middle part of Acts chapter 18. So we'll be in there, but I just want you to kind of see what's taking place here. But notice this city right here, Lystra. That's where they're going to go first. They're not going to take the ship down to Cyprus. That's where, that's where Barnabas and John Mark are going to go. They're going to go by land, but they're going to go through these cities first. Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. But remember Lystra. Lystra was where Paul was nearly stoned to death and dragged outside that city the last time they visited. And we could all say, I don't think we'd blame Paul for leaving Lystra off the itinerary. But yeah, that's the first place we're told he goes. And I love that. Right? I love about the boldness. I love about saying, sometimes we say, well, I'm going to save the hardest part for last. Right? Anyone do that? I, I can do that sometimes. So he's, I'm going to make the hardest part the first. At least what he thinks is the hardest part. God's got some things in store for him. But he goes right, he goes right to it. And I love that. I love that he does. And I love how it's going to be so fruitful because while he's there, he's going to see this young man named Timothy and who God has grown him into being. Timothy, we see, loves the Lord. He's seeking to follow the Lord and live out his commands. We're told he's got a great reputation amongst all those other Christians and the churches in these three cities. And when Paul sees him, he's so impressed with them, mutually encouraged with them. He says, I want you to be a part of this mission team. Come and join Silas and I, and let's be a part of this mission team. But here's the conflict. Timothy has not been circumcised. 
And if you were with us here last Sunday, you're like, well, what does that have to do with anything, right? Well, I thought we squared that away. He, he doesn't need to be circumcised. And so this is kind of confusing. Why does Paul have him circumcised? Well, listen, it's, it's not because it was necessary for salvation. We know it's not. We talked about that at length last week. However, we still see in the text that he decides to have him circumcised. So we say, why, what, for? Well, I want you to think about this. It was one thing for Paul to go to Jerusalem and ask, should we be having these Gentiles be circumcised, come and become proselytes to Judaism in order to be saved? And, and the, the determination is no, you do not need to do that. Faith in Jesus is enough. And then, and then Peter says, we're being saved the same way they are. We're being saved through faith in Jesus. That's it. We were never saved because we were circumcised. We were never saved because we kept the law of Moses. We've all been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, his finished work. So all that's going on, but there's this other part that is really beautiful when you break it down. You have Timothy here who has an opportunity to come and be a part of this missionary journey. But Timothy, we're told, he's born of a certain Jewish woman, which means his mom is Jewish. His dad, we're told later, is Greek. Now in this day and age, the religion of the, of the mother is what was passed down to the child. Because in this day and age, it was a lot easier to confirm who the mother of a child was than the father. Because who birthed that person is the mom. And so Timothy is a Jew. He's not a Gentile. In Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see another young man come alongside Paul named Titus. And we're going to see he is a Gentile. He's a Greek. And it will say he was not compelled to be circumcised. It's not necessary for him. And again, not for salvation, but for ethnic identity, right? Here's Timothy, who is a Jew, right? And for Paul, he's going to say, well, I want to preach the gospel to these people. I want Timothy to be a part of this missionary team. But if we don't have him circumcised, now all of a sudden, we've got Genesis 17 staring, at, at our, staring back at us. Genesis 17 is when God makes a promise, a covenant to Abraham and all of his descendants, all the Jewish people. Abraham, not only the father of the faith, but the father of the Jewish nation. And God says, Abraham, I want to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to multiply your descendants as much as the sand of the seashore. And I'm going to give you land. He gives all this blessing. And the one thing I want you to do, Abraham, to show that you want to be in this covenant agreement was circumcision. I want you to have every male circumcised on the eighth day. And Timothy hadn't been. Maybe Timothy's father died when he was young. Maybe he, maybe he didn't want it done, and so there was this conflict in between them. But the bottom line is he never had been circumcised. But everyone, Paul tells us, everyone knows he's Jewish. He's raised up by a godly Jewish mother who teaches him the scripture, Old Testament, and he comes to know the God of Israel. He comes to know Jesus being Lord. But what we have here is we have a conflict with the culture. Part number two here, we've got a conflict with the culture. If you bring Timothy along as an uncircumcised Jewish male, do you know what's going to happen? Every single time they go into a synagogue, every single time they try to preach the gospel of grace to another Jewish person, the issue is going to be, why isn't he circumcised? Right? Not because it's necessary for salvation, but because it was necessary to be identified as the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. And so listen, what does Paul do? He says, we're going to remove that distraction. We're not going to let circumcision be the issue that we talk about when we go into these synagogues. We want it to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want it to be Jesus crucified for the sins of the world, Jesus resurrected from the grave, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus offering forgiveness for sins because of the finished work. 
Think about how beautiful this is. When we have conflicts with the culture, and we have conflicts with the culture, don't we Christians? How often do we hold on to something even at the cost of putting it in front of the gospel? Right? We're Christians, we're not, we don't do a very good job about this. We've got so many things that they become the thing we're known about most other than Jesus crucified for the sins of the world. Other than Jesus hanging on a cross to show the world how much he loves them, even us included. We want, we want to talk about sin more than the remedy. Right? Because we, we fall into that. But listen, Paul says, I'm not going to let this issue get in front of the gospel. And while we're impressed with Paul, let's be a lot more impressed with Timothy. Because Timothy's the grown man who's agreeing to be circumcised. Timothy's the one with the choice. Hey, do you want to come on mission? Do you want to be on this missionary journey? He says, well, there'll probably be a lot of spiritual benefits. I'm probably going to grow a lot. I'm going to get to hang out with Paul, but I also have to be circumcised. You know what? I'm just going to stay here. But instead he says, you know, I'm going to lay down my rights so I can be one who represents Jesus and the offer of salvation to all who believe upon him. That's what's going on here. Listen to this. We, we talk about this sometimes, but I want to talk more about this here this morning. This is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. It's a little bit long, but follow this. This is Paul speaking. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as those under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Listen, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Now I bring all this up because this is, this is how to handle conflict with the culture. There are things that we must, we must, we must stand upon. And there are other things that we can, just as Paul is showing us here, we can allow those to to have their right place for the gospel's sake. And what we're seeing here for Timothy is he's going to let the gospel message be primary. He's, He's not going to hold on to his freedom. He doesn't have to be circumcised. Not a matter of salvation. He's called a disciple earlier in this situation. In verse 1, he's called a certain disciple. He's already a believer. He does not need to be circumcised. But he chooses to be. So he can be out there able to share the gospel, offering it to others who can partake, join with him in the saving grace of the Lord. But what I love about this here is, is we can fall into this sometimes where, where we, we let the main thing kind of get convoluted. And let, let's get back to what is the main thing. The, the main thing we want people to know is Jesus. We want them to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We want them to be forgiven of their sin. We want them to be born again. And what happens, sometimes we can let other things compete with that. We can let other things be even in front of that. But until we get that answer, that question answered, have they surrendered their life? Have they put their faith in Jesus? Until we get that one answered, we're talking about a whole bunch of things, spinning our wheels, and it may or not be getting them any closer to answering that question. 
But what we're seeing here in this conflict with the culture is that Timothy steps down, lays down his life, just as we see Paul willing to do here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But I just, I, I even would go so far as to say, I would, I would beg you to grasp this, Christian. I would beg you to have the mindset that isn't, what can I hold on to? But Lord, what do you want me to let go of for the gospel's sake? What would you have me in my life cease from doing for the gospel's sake? When Paul opens up this situation, initially he says, I'm free of all men. And the Christian, we are the freest people on the planet. We are free, right? But then we put ourselves willingly as bond servants of Jesus and he sends us back in to serve. Not to serve these people per se, to serve Jesus while we're serving them. But what for? For the gospel's sake. So they would have an opportunity to see Christ in us, to hear Christ in us, to have an opportunity to be partakers of salvation with us. But what we see, there's a collision point here where sometimes it requires for us to lay down some of these things. That's what Paul's saying. We, use, we hear that verse sometimes, I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And we hear that kind of justified sometimes, totally missing context. People saying, hey, you know, look at me. I'm, I'm driving this car. Or I'm hanging out at this place. or I'm, I'm doing shady things with shady people in shady places because, hey, I want to see if people would get saved. That is not what Paul's talking about. Paul is not risking slipping down the slippery slope. Paul's not risking putting himself under sin. He's not risking blowing his testimony. He's not talking about what he can add to his life. He's talking about what he can set down in order to shine his light brighter for the people around him. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in its entirety. Please do that. That's your, that's your homework. Read 1 Corinthians 9 on your own after the study. He's talking, what, what can I lay down? And now Timothy here, in this beautiful way, in this conflict with the culture, says, hey, if somebody's got to lay their lives down, let it be me. Let it be the Christian. They're not going to waste their time going into the synagogues to try and tell them that circumcision was really just a figurative example, not done by human hands, but it was really God cutting away, removing the flesh from the heart. Try to tell that to an Orthodox Jewish person. You're going to waste your time and you're going to miss the opportunity to share the gospel, that which they really need to hear and receive. But that's what we see. That's all truth. I put that in your study guide. You can see all those verses, but that's what they do here. And it's a great pattern for life. Timothy's just willing to pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow Jesus. He's even willing to go through this situation as painful as it's going to be. He knows it's going to be temporary compared to the eternal weight of glory to spend the next 18 plus or so years with Paul as a, as a right-hand man, being mentored by Paul, even being one that Paul's going to pass down some of these things to him, the church in Ephesus, and some of these other things. But church, I just want you to engage with this. This is this pattern for life. Ask the Lord, how can I better serve those people around me? Ask the Lord this one, is there anything I can do, Lord? to make the gospel more receptive to the people around me? Is there anything I'm allowing in my life that's getting in front of the gospel? And I want you to think about that. And I I try to always refrain from giving examples of this because these are not the only examples. There's a plethora of things that the Spirit may be convicting different people. But I want to tell you this. Living in compromise, living in contradiction to what the Word of God says, those are things that are getting in front of the gospel. 
We can't expect to live a life of power if we're not living a life of power, if we're not willing to live a life of power, right? We can't expect the gospel to be receptive to other people if they're looking at our lives saying, I don't even know if you're saved, right? We can't. We're, we're wanting to be salt and light. Timothy's saying, I want to be salt and light. I want to be a missionary taking the gospel message to the end of the earth. And I don't care what's in the way. I'm going to lay it down because I want people to get saved. And that's got to be our heart. And it is heavy, but that's, that's what we're seeing here, and it's beautiful. We live in a culture that is actually turning to the way it had always been, where Christians are marginalized, where Christians are really not seen as that powerful or that influential. And I think it's high time for us to get back to a biblical Christianity, to get back to a place where we say, Lord, I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I need to break away from the compromise and the, the, the kind of the tertial things, those things that we're, we're kind of splitting hairs on and say, Lord, you be glorified. You show me what you want to do. In my personal life, God has had to set down so many things for me. God has just asked, I want you to set that down because I want you to grab a hold of, of more of me. I want you to, to take a softer stance on that because it's, it's becoming one of those things that's getting in front of the gospel. Please just ask the Lord, what are those things for you? What are those things that you're like, these are my hot button issues or these are the things that I know everybody knows about me is, is, is God's love for the world, sending his son to die, to bring people into salvation. Is that any, is that in the top three? Because if it's not, that's what we need to get back to. In this culture, we need to bring that back to the forefront. So that's what we're seeing here. And a beautiful example, Timothy's willing to do that. He's going to join with the Apostle Paul and Silas. And off they go. Verse 5 says they're going to be strengthening these other churches in the faith. And look at they're increasing in number. God's growing these churches in the places where they're at. Verse 6 says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So moving into our third and final part here this morning, our, our last conflict, this, this conflict with God. Look at what gets set up here. Paul, Silas, Timothy now, they leave Derby. They're going to Lystra, to Iconium, but they want to go to Galatia. They want to head north into Asia. And we're not told why they want to. Maybe they just think that's, the, that's unreached territory. We should want to go here. So they want to go north. They want to go up into Asia. And it says that the Spirit of God forbid them. They were forbidden by the Holy Spirit in verse 6. So they say, oh, okay, I guess we need to go to Bithynia. Now, it's not on the map, but it's, it's still north into Asia, north of Antioch. And it says again, but the Spirit did not permit them. Like God is closing doors, right? And what do we have? We have a conflict with God here. We've got these missionaries who really want to go and do something. But the Spirit of God is saying, no, I don't want you to do that. Even notice this in, in verse 7. It says, they tried. Like the Spirit of God says, don't do it once. They're like, no, no, we really want to do it though. This has got to be a good thing. And they try again and God has to tell them no again. Have you ever had that happen? Am I the only one who has tried to pry open a door that God has clearly shut, right? Am I the only one? I, I hope not. I mean, actually, maybe I do. Maybe I do hope I am because it's not a good thing to do. 
because you're going to find out God was right all along. We really shouldn't have been there. But they're fighting against the Lord in a sense. There's a disagreement. There's a conflict with God. Now, we don't know. We, we want to know what, what does it mean he forbid them? What does it mean that God was, was, was not permitting them to go into an area? And, and again, we're not given the specifics here. Maybe there's illness or strife. Maybe there's closed doors or there's opposition. Maybe there's a lack of peace in their hearts. Maybe some itinerant prophet comes by and says, hey, I've got a word for the Lord here. Don't go up here at this time. We we don't know. It could have been one of those things or several of those things. But the Spirit of God clearly speaks to them that he doesn't want them to go into those places yet. And do note that part yet. He's not saying don't ever go into these places. He's told his disciples to go to the end of the earth, making disciples of all nations. So they're going to go here eventually. But for Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're not to go here right now. God has something different for them. So what are they going to do? They're going to end up in Troas where they wait to hear from the Lord. And they're going to have a vision to go to Macedonia and it's going to be beautiful. We're going to see some doors open there. We'll talk about that next week. But I I want us to, to talk about this conflict with God. How do we handle that? How do we handle those things? We're like, I really want to do this. Is this right? I think this is from the Lord. And it feels like doors are closing. And, and, and maybe there's a lack of peace. Or just, it just, just feels like we're kicking against the goads to try and go to a place. How do we handle it when we have a differing of opinion with God? Who, who wins that? How do we discern the will of the Lord when we find ourselves in a place where we're going to this area maybe isn't morally bad, we're trying to follow the Great Commission, but yet the Spirit of God is trying to lead us somewhere else? How do we discern that? Well, it's kind of tricky, and I found an article that I really liked that had some information for someone who was really good at discerning the will of the Lord and waiting on Him, and it's a man named George Mueller. And some of you are familiar with George Mueller, an incredible missionary, a faithful man after God's own heart, a man who, who launched several orphanages and really was used of God mightily. But a man, if you're familiar with his biography, a man whose life did not go the way he thought it was going to go. A man who had a lot of preparations to go into certain areas, and the Lord says, you're not going there. You need to do this. So he, he, he puts this article down saying, how do we handle, how do we discern the will of God? How do we know when we're in a conflict like this what God wants us to do? And so here's seven things from George Mueller that is a great pattern for life for us. Number one, he says, stop trying to go where he doesn't want you to go. Right? That sounds basic. It would just stop. Right? Stop. Find your troas and hang out until the Lord tells you where he wants you to go. So stop. Number two, this part's a lot harder. He says, surrender your own will. George Mueller's own words. He says, nine-tenths, 90% of the trouble is right here. People just not willing to surrender their own will towards the Lord. God wants to do something and we say, nope, I want to do this. Think about that, nine-tenths. But ultimately it's surrender, saying, Lord, not my will be done, your will be done. I am yours bought with a precious price, with your precious blood. Lead me, guide me as you so desire. Number three, he says, do not depend on your own feelings. That one's important, right? Don't leave the result to feeling or simple impression. That's how we make ourselves liable to these illusions that we're, we're wondering, is this really us? Is this really the Lord? He says, don't depend on your own feelings. Feelings are fleeting. But instead, verse 4, he says, seek God's will through God's word. 
He says, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through and in connection with the Word of God. And I love that he says the Spirit and the Word must be combined. He says, if I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I open myself up to be deceived. I open myself up to to a delusion that I think I know where I'm going. But if I let the Word and the Spirit work in conjunction as they are designed and given to us to work in conjunction, that's going to show us where we're supposed to go. That's going to bring some light into the situation. Verse 5, I like this one too. He says, note providential circumstances. And like it says, note them, right? Acknowledge them. Take them into account. Providential circumstances. Take it to know where God is moving. What is God providing? Where are the open doors? What is happening? We always want to say, well, show me a sign, Lord. And, and, and he's going to say, look to the resurrection for your sign. But there are, there are providential inclinations. There are providential occurrences. God is moving. God is doing different things. And those things can be in conjunction with everything else we're talking about him. So note them. And then number six, he says, pray. Ask God in prayer to reveal his word for you. And then number seven, wait. Wait on the Lord. But think about some of those things. They're they're not that profound, if you will, but they are absolutely essential when we're trying to seek out the will of the Lord. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're going to wait on the Lord here in Troas, and God is going to give them an incredible vision, and they're going to know without question they're supposed to go into Macedonia. And we'll talk about that, the rest of that mission trip Um, Probably not entirely next week, but we'll get into it in more detail. But as we pull out some of these things, as we try to wrap this up, thinking about these patterns for life, we've seen conflict in three different areas. Conflict with other Christians. Conflict in, in the church. We've seen conflict in the culture. And we've seen conflict here with the Lord. But we've seen that conflict can and ought to be handled the right way. We've pulled out a lot of different patterns. And here's where we just have the opportunity to try and apply these. I'm sure something in this has spoken to a situation that you may find yourself in right now. I know it has for me. And so now now comes the opportunity to put some of this stuff in practice. Now it comes to the opportunity to say, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can take what your word has just revealed to me and I I can put it into practice in my very life. And so I ask you to do that. I ask you to pray. I ask you to engage with that. In fact, let's do this right now. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. And just ask for the Lord to meet us and lead us in these different areas that we have. Father, you know the points of conflict that are going on in our lives. Father, I can look around and I can can see my brothers and sisters, God, and and even through the the spirit of discernment or maybe something that they've told me, God, I know that there's, there's spousal conflict, there's relational conflict, Lord God, and you've just shown us how we're to handle that. God, to to pray, to pray about that person, to pray to see the other person's perspective, to seek a wise compromise, God, to to wait, to give you time to do what only you can do. God, we've talked about conflict with our culture. God, every single Christian in this place, we are in a war, a conflict with our culture. And God, we have been not left without weapons of, of warfare, God, but they're spiritual, they're mighty in God to tear down strongholds, and they're all found in Jesus' name. And so I pray, God, that your gospel would be so present on our lips that the saving grace that you offer through the finished work of your son, that's what we want people to know most about us. That's what you want people to know most about you. First about you, that you save, that you are able to save to the uttermost, completely, entirely those who come to you. And Father, I know there's some here, God, you're, you're working a calling in their life. You're directing them into places. Or you're telling them to press in and where they're at. You're, you're guiding them. You're leading them. And they're saying, nine-tenths of me doesn't want to go. 
God, I pray that you help us surrender. I pray that you help us just know that, God, where you're guiding us, God, that's the best place for us to be. Right next to you is the best place for us to be. So God, help us just work out some of those conflicts. Help us see you in everything. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Right now we pray, pour out your Spirit upon your people, upon this church. God, we need you. For every conflict, we need you. For every, every celebration, we need you. God, for every step, we need you. And thank you that we have you. So we ask, come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Come and guide us and lead us the rest of this day and however many days you'd allow us to be right here in this place. We love you, Jesus, and lift this all up in your precious and holy name. Amen.